Chapter Twenty Five of the Empire of Russia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. The Empire of Russia from the remotest periods to the present time by john stevens cabot abbott chapter twenty five reign of catherine the second from seventeen sixty five to seventeen seventy four energy of catherine's administration titles of honor decreed to her code of laws instituted the assassination of the empress attempted encouragement of learned men Catherine inoculated for the smallpox, new war with Turkey, capture of Crimea, sailing of the Russian fleet, great naval victory, visit of the Prussian Prince Henry, the sleigh ride, plans for the partition of Poland, the Hermitage, marriage of the Grand Duke Paul, correspondence with Voltaire and Diderot. The friends and the foes of Catherine are alike lavish in their encomiums upon her attempts to elevate Russia in prosperity and in national greatness. Under her guidance, an assembly was convened to frame a code of laws based on justice and which should be supreme throughout all Russia. The assembly prosecuted its work with great energy, and ere its dissolution passed a resolution decreeing to the Empress the titles of great, wise, prudent, and mother of the country. To this decree Catherine modestly replied, If I have rendered myself worthy of the first title, it belongs to posterity to confer it upon me. Wisdom and prudence are the gifts of heaven, for which I daily give thanks, without presuming to derive any merit from them myself. The title of mother of the country is in my eyes the most dear of all, the only one I can accept, and which I regard as the most benign and glorious recompense for my labors and solicitudes in behalf of a people whom I love. The Code of Laws thus framed is a noble monument to the genius and humanity of Catherine II. The principles of enlightened philanthropy pervades the Code, which recognizes the immutable principles of right, and which seems designed to undermine the very foundations of despotism. In the instructions which Catherine drew up for the guidance of the assembly, she wrote, Laws should be framed with the sole object of conducting mankind to the greatest happiness. It is our duty to mitigate the lot of those who live in a state of dependence. The liberty and security of the citizens ought to be the grand and precious object of all laws. They should all tend to render life, honor, and property as stable and secure as the constitution of the government itself. It is incomparably better to prevent crimes than to punish them. The use of torture is contrary to sound reason. Humanity cries out against this practice and insists on its being abolished. The condition of the peasantry, heavily taxed by the nobles, excited her deepest commiseration. She wished their entire enfranchisement, but was fully conscious that she was not strong enough to undertake so sweeping a measure of reform. She insisted, however, that laws should be prescribed to the nobility 
obliging them to act more circumspectly in the manner of levying their dues, and to protect the peasant, so that his condition might be improved, and that he might be enabled to acquire property. A ruffian attempted to assassinate Catherine. He was arrested in the palace, with a long dagger concealed in his dress, and without hesitation confessed his design. Catherine had the assassin brought into her presence, conversed mildly with him, and seeing that there was no hope of disarming his fanaticism, banished him to Siberia. But the innocent daughter of the guilty man she took under her protection, and subsequently appointed her one of her maids of honor. In the year 1767 she sent a delegation of scientific men on a geological survey into the interior of the empire with directions to determine the geographical position of the principal places, to mark their temperature, their productions, their wealth, and the manners and characters of the several people by whom they were inhabited. Russia was then, as now, a world by itself, peopled by innumerable tribes or nations, with a great diversity of climates, and with an infinite variety of manners and customs. A large portion of the country was immersed in the profoundest barbarism, almost inaccessible to the traveller. In other portions, vagrant hordes wandered without any fixed habitations. Here was seen the castle of the noble with all its imposing architecture and its enginery of offence and defence. The mud hovels of the peasants were clustered around the massive pile, and they passed their lives in the most degrading bondage. From all parts of Europe the most learned men were invited to the court of Catherine. The renowned mathematician Euler was lured from Berlin to St. Petersburg. The empress settled upon him a large annual stipend, and made him a present of a house. Catherine was fully conscious that the glory of a country consists not in its military achievements, but in advancement in science and in the useful and elegant arts. The annual sum of five thousand dollars was assigned to encourage the translation of foreign poetry works into the Russian language. The smallpox was making fearful ravages in Russia. The empress had heard of inoculation. She sent to England for a physician, Dr. Thomas Dimsdale, who had practiced inoculation for the smallpox with great success in London. Immediately upon his arrival the empress sent for him, and with skill which astonished the physician, questioned him respecting his mode of practice. He was invited to dine with the empress, and the doctor thus describes the dinner-party. The empress sat singly at the upper end of a long table, at which about twelve of the nobility were guests. The entertainment consisted of a variety of excellent dishes, served up after the French manner, and was concluded by a dessert of the finest fruits and sweetmeats such as I little expected to find in that northern climate. Most of these luxuries were, however, the produce of the Empress's own dominions. Pineapples, indeed, are chiefly imported from England, though those of the growth of Russia, of which we had one that day, are of good flavor, but generally small. Watermelons and grapes are brought from Astrakhan, great plenty of melons from Moscow, and apples and pears from the Ukraine. But what most enlivened the whole entertainment was the unaffected ease and affability of the empress herself. Each of her guests had a share of her attention and politeness. The conversation was kept up with freedom and cheerfulness, 
to be expected rather from persons of the same rank than from subjects admitted to the honor of their sovereign's company the empress after conversing with dr dimsdale decided to introduce the practice of smallpox inoculation into russia and heroically resolved that the experiment should first be tried upon herself dr dimsdale oppressed by the immense responsibility thus thrown upon him for though the disease thus introduced was generally mild in not a few cases it proved fatal requested the assistance of the court physicians it is not necessary the empress replied you come well recommended the conversation i have had increases my confidence in you it is impossible that my physician should have much skill in this operation my life is my own and with the utmost cheerfulness i entrust myself to your care i wish to be inoculated as soon as you judge it convenient and desire to have it kept a secret the anxious physician begged that the experiment might first be tried by inoculating some of her own sex and age and as near as possible of her own constitutional habits the empress replied the practice is not novel and no doubt remains of its general success it is therefore not necessary that there should be any delay on that account catherine was inoculated on the twelfth of october seventeen sixty eight and went immediately to a secluded private palace at some distance from the city under the pretence that she wished to superintend some repairs she took with her only the necessary attendants soon however several of the nobility some of whom she had suspected had not had the smallpox followed as a week was to elapse after the operation before the disease would begin to manifest itself the empress said to dr dimsdale i must rely on you to give me notice when it is possible for me to communicate the disease though i could wish to keep my inoculation a secret yet far be it from me to conceal it a moment when it may become hazardous to others in the meantime she took part in every amusement with her wonted affability and without the slightest indication of alarm she dined with the rest of the company and enlivened the whole court with those conversational charms for which she was distinguished the disease proved light and she was carried through it very successfully soon after she wrote to voltaire i have not kept my bed a single instant and i have received company every day i am about to have my only son inoculated count orloff that hero who resembles the ancient romans in the best times of the republic both in courage and generosity doubting whether he had ever had the smallpox has put himself under the hands of our englishmen and the next day after the operation went to the hunt in a very deep fall of snow a great number of courtiers have followed his example and many others are preparing to do so besides this inoculation is now carried on at petersburg in three seminaries of education and in a hospital established under the protection of dr dimsdale the empress testified her gratitude for the benefits dr dimsdale had conferred upon russia by making him a present of fifty thousand dollars and settling upon him a pension of one thousand dollars a year on the third of december seventeen sixty eight a thanksgiving service was performed in the chapel of the palace in gratitude for the recovery of her majesty and her son paul from the smallpox the turks began now to manifest great apprehensions in view of the rapid growth of the russian empire poland was so entirely overshadowed that its monarchs were elected and its government administered under the influence of a russian army in truth poland had become but little more than one of the provinces of catherine's empire 
the grand senior formed an alliance with the disaffected poles arrested the russian ambassador at constantinople and mustered his hosts for war catherine the second was prepared for the emergency early in seventeen sixty nine the russian army commenced its march toward the banks of the cuban in the wilds of circassia the tatars of the crimea were the first foes whom the armies of catherine encountered the sea of azov with its surrounding shores soon fell into the possession of russia one of the generals of catherine general drevich a man whose name deserves to be held up to eternal infamy took nine polish gentlemen as captives and cutting off their hands at the wrist sent them home thus mutilated to strike terror into the poles already frederick of prussia and catherine were secretly conferring upon a united attack upon poland and the division of the territory between them frederick sent his brother henry to st petersburg to confer with catherine upon this contemplated robbery sufficiently gigantic in character to be worthy of the energies of the royal bandits catherine received henry with splendor which the world has seldom seen equalled one of the entertainments with which she honored him was a moonlight sleigh-ride arranged upon a scale of imperial grandeur the sleigh which conveyed catherine and the prussian prince was an immense parlor drawn by sixteen horses covered and enclosed by double glasses which with numberless mirrors reflected all objects within and without this sledge was followed by a retinue of two thousand others every person in all the sledges was dressed in fancy costume and masked when two miles from the city the train passed beneath a triumphal arch illuminated with all conceivable splendor at the distance of every mile some grand structure appeared in a blaze of light a pyramid or a temple or colonnades or the most brilliant displays of fireworks opposite each of these structures ballrooms had been reared which were crowded with the rustic peasantry amusing themselves with music dancing and all the games of the country each of the spacious houses of entertainment personated some particular russian nation where the dress music and amusements of that nation were represented all sorts of gymnastic feats were also exhibited such as vaulting tumbling and feats upon the slack and tight rope through such scenes the imperial pleasure party rode until a high mountain appeared through an avenue cut in the forest representing mount vesuvius during an eruption vast billows of flame were rolling to the skies and the whole region was illuminated with a blaze of light the spectators had hardly recovered from the astonishment which this display caused when the train suddenly entered a chinese village which proved to be but the portal to the imperial palace of tsarskoselo the palace was lighted with an infinite number of wax candles for two hours the guests amused themselves with dancing suddenly there was a grand discharge of cannon the candles were immediately extinguished and a magnificent display of fireworks extending along the whole breadth of the palace converted night into day again there was a thundering discharge of artillery when as by enchantment the candles blazed anew and a sumptuous supper was served up after the entertainment dancing was renewed and was continued until morning the empress had a private palace at st petersburg which she called her hermitage where she received none but her choicest friends 
This sumptuous edifice merits some minuteness of description. It consisted of a suite of apartments containing everything which the most voluptuous and exquisite taste could combine. The spacious building was connected with the imperial palace by a covered arch. It would require a volume to describe the treasures of art and industry with which it abounded. Here the empress had her private library and her private picture gallery. Raphael's celebrated gallery in the Vatican at Rome was exactly repeated here with the most accurate copies of all the paintings, corner pieces, and other ornaments of the same size and in the same situations. Medals, engravings, curious pieces of art, models of mechanical inventions, and collections of specimens of minerals and of objects of natural history crowded the cabinets. Chambers were arranged for all species of amusements. A pleasure garden was constructed upon arches, with furnaces beneath them in winter, that the plants might ever enjoy genial heat. This garden was covered with fine brass wire, that the birds from all countries, singing among the trees and shrubs, or hopping along the grass plots and gravel walks, and which the empress was accustomed to feed with her own hand, might not escape. While the storms of a Russian winter were howling without, the empress here could tread upon verdant lawns and gravel walks beneath luxuriant vegetation, listening to bird songs and partaking of fruits and flowers of every kind. In this artificial Eden the empress often received Henry, the Prussian prince, and matured her plan for the partition of Poland. The festivities which dazzled the eyes of the frivolous courtiers were hardly thought of by Catherine and Henry. Mr. Richardson, an English gentleman who was in the family of Lord Cathcart, then the British ambassador at the Russian court, had sufficient sagacity to detect that, beneath this display of amusements, political intrigues of great moment were being woven. He wrote from St. Petersburg on the 1st of January, 1771, as follows. This city, since the beginning of winter, has exhibited a continual scene of festivities, feasts, balls, concerts, plays, and the masquerades in continued succession, and in all honor of, to divert His Royal Highness Prince Henry of Prussia, the famous brother of the present king, yet His Royal Highness does not seem to be much diverted. He looks at them as an old cat looks at the gambols of a young kitten, or as one who has higher sport going on in his mind than the pastime of fiddling and dancing. He came here on pretense of a friendly visit to the Empress, to have the happiness of waiting on so magnanimous a princess, and to see with his own eyes the progress of these immense improvements, so highly celebrated by Voltaire and those French writers who receive gifts from Her Majesty. But do you seriously imagine that this creature of skin and bone should travel through Sweden, Finland, and Poland, all for the pleasure of seeing the metropolis and the Empress of Russia? Other princes may pursue such pastime, but the princes of the house of Brandenburg fly at a nobler quarry, or is the king of Prussia, as a tame spectator, to reap no advantage from the troubles in Poland and the Turkish war? What is the meaning of his late conferences with the emperor of Germany? Depend upon it, these planetary conjunctions are the forerunner of great events. A few months may unfold the secret. You will recollect the signs— when after this you shall hear of changes, usurpations, and revolutions. In one of these interviews, in which the dismemberment of Poland was resolved on, Catherine said, I will frighten Turkey and flatter England. 
do you take it upon yourself to buy over austria and amuse france though the arrangements for the partition were at this time all made the portion which was to be assigned to austria agreed upon and the extent of territory which each was to appropriate to itself settled the formal treaty was not signed till two years afterwards the war still continued to rage on the frontiers of turkey after ten months of almost incessant slaughter the turkish army was nearly destroyed the empress collected two squadrons of russian men-of-war at archangel on the white sea and at revel on the baltic and sent them through the straits of gibraltar into the mediterranean all europe was astonished at this wonderful apparition suddenly presenting itself amidst the islands of the archipelago the inhabitants of the greek islands were encouraged to rise and they drove out their mussulman oppressors with great slaughter catherine was alike victorious on the land and on the sea and she began very seriously to contemplate driving the turks out of europe and taking possession of constantinople her land troops speedily overran the immense provinces of bessarabia moldavia and wallachia and annexed them to the russian empire the turkish fleet encountered the russians in the narrow channel which separates the island of shio from natolia in one of the fiercest naval battles on record which raged for five hours the turkish fleet was entirely destroyed a courier was instantly dispatched to st petersburg with the exultant tidings the rejoicings in st petersburg over this naval victory were unbounded the empress was so elated that she resolved to liberate both greece and egypt from the sway of the turks the turks were in a terrible panic and resorted to the most desperate measures to defend the dardanelles that the russian fleet might not ascend to constantinople at the same time the plague broke out in constantinople with horrible violence a thousand dying daily for several weeks the immense crimean peninsula contains fifteen thousand square miles being twice as large as the state of massachusetts the isthmus of Perikop, which connects it with the mainland is but five miles in width the turks had fortified this passage by a ditch seventy-two feet wide and forty-two feet deep and had stationed along this line an army of fifty thousand tatars but the russians forced the barrier and the crimea became a russian province the victorious army however soon encountered a foe whom no courage could vanquish the plague broke out in their camp and spread through all russia with desolation which seems incredible although well authenticated in moscow not more than one-fourth of the inhabitants were left alive more than sixty thousand died in that city in less than a year for days the dead lay in the streets where they had fallen there not being carts or people enough to carry them away the pestilence gradually subsided before the intensity of wintry frosts the devastation of war and the plague rendered both the russians and turks desirous of peace on the second of august seventeen seventy two the russian and turkish plenipotentiaries met under tents on a plain about nineteen miles north of bucharest the capital of wallachia the russian ministers approached in four grand coaches preceded by hussars and attended by one hundred and sixty servants in livery the turkish ministers came on horseback with about sixty servants all dressed in great simplicity the two parties however could not agree and the conference was broken up the negotiations were soon resumed at bucharest 
but this attempt was also equally unsuccessful with the first the plot for the partition of poland was now ripe russia prussia and austria had agreed to march their armies into the kingdom and divide a very large portion of the territory between them it was as high-handed a robbery as the world ever witnessed there is some consolation however in the reflection that the masses of the people in poland were quite unaffected by the change they were no more oppressed by their new despots than they had been for ages by their old ones by this act russia annexed to her territory the enormous addition of three thousand four hundred and forty square leagues sparsely inhabited indeed yet containing a population of one million five hundred thousand austria obtained less territory but nearly twice as many inhabitants prussia obtained the contiguous provinces she coveted with about nine hundred thousand inhabitants they still left to the king of poland in his first partition a small fragment of his kingdom the king of prussia removed from his portion the first year twelve thousand families who were sent to populate the uninhabited wilds of his hereditary dominions all the young men were seized and sent to the prussian army the same general course was pursued by russia that the polish population might be incorporated with that of russia and all national individuality lost the poles were removed into ancient russia while whole provinces of russians were sent to populate poland the vast wealth which at this time the russian court was able to extort from labor may be inferred from the fact that while the empress was carrying on the most expensive wars her disbursements to favorites generals and literary men in encouraging the arts purchasing libraries pictures statues antiques and jewels vastly exceeded that of any european prince excepting louis the fourteenth a diamond of very large size and purity weighing seven hundred and seventy-nine carats was brought from isfahan by a greek catherine purchased it for five hundred thousand dollars settling at the same time a pension of five thousand dollars for life upon the fortunate greek of whom she bought it the war still raged fiercely in turkey with the usual vicissitudes of battles the danube at length became the boundary between the hostile armies its wide expanse of water its islands and its wooded shores affording endless opportunity for surprises ambuscades flight and pursuit under these circumstances war was prosecuted with an enormous loss of life but as the wasting armies were continually being replenished it seemed as though there could be no end to the strife catherine had for some time been mediating a marriage for her son the grand duke paul there was a grand duchy in germany on the rhine almost equally divided by that stream called darmstadt it contained three thousand nine hundred square miles being about half the size of the state of massachusetts and embraced a population of nearly a million the duke of darmstadt had three very attractive daughters either one of whom catherine thought would make a very suitable match for her son she accordingly invited the three young ladies with their mother to visit her court that her son might after a careful scrutiny take his pick the brilliance of the prospective match with the tsar of all the russians outweighed every scruple and the invitation was eagerly accepted paul was cold as an iceberg stubborn as a mule and crack-brained but he could place on the brow of his spouse the crown of an empress catherine received her guests with the greatest magnificence loaded them with presents and finally chose one of them wilhelmina for the bride of paul 
the marriage was solemnized on the tenth of november seventeen seventy three with all the splendor with which the russian court could invest the occasion the festivities being continued from the tenth to the twenty-first of the month catherine with her own hand kept up a regular correspondence with many literary and scientific men in other parts of europe particularly with voltaire and diderot the illustrious philosophers of france several times she sent them earnest invitations to visit her court diderot accepted her invitation and was received with confiding and friendly attentions which no merely crowned head could have secured diderot sat at the table of the empress and daily held long social interviews with her conversing upon politics philosophy legislation freedom of conscience and the rights of nations catherine was charmed with the enthusiasm and eloquence of her guest but she perfectly appreciated the genius and the puerility combined in his character diderot she says is a hundred years old in many respects but in others he is no more than ten the following letter from catherine to diderot written with all the freedom of the most confidential correspondence gives a clearer view of the character of catherine's mind and of her energy than any description could give now we are speaking of haughtiness i have a mind to make a general confession to you on that head i have had great successes during the war that i am glad of it you will very naturally conclude i find that russia will be well known by this war it will be seen how indefatigable a nation it is that she possesses men of eminent merit and who have all the qualities which go to the forming of heroes it will be seen that she is deficient in no resources but that she can defend herself and prosecute a war with vigor whenever she is unjustly attacked brimful of these ideas i have never once thought of catherine who at the age of forty-two can increase neither in body nor in mind but in the natural order of things ought to remain and will remain as she is do her affairs go on well she says so much the better if they prosper less she would employ all her faculties to put them in a better train this is my ambition and i have none other what i tell you is the truth i will go further and say that for the sparing of human blood i sincerely wish for peace but this peace is still a long way off though the turks from different motives are ardently desirous of it those people know not how to go about it i wish as much for the pacification of the unreasonable contentions of poland i have to do there with brainless heads each of which instead of contributing to the common peace on the contrary throws impediments in the way of it by caprice and levity my ambassador has published a declaration adapted to open their eyes but it is to be presumed that they will rather expose themselves to the last extremity than adopt without delay a wise and consistent rule of conduct the vortices of descartes never existed anywhere but in poland there every head is a vortex turning continually around itself it is stopped by chance alone and never by reason or judgment i have not yet received your questions or your watches from fernie i have no doubt that the work of your artificers is perfect since they work under your eyes do not scold your rustics for having sent me a surplus of watches the expense of them will not ruin me it would be very unfortunate for me if i were so far reduced as not to have for sudden emergencies such small sums whenever i want them judge not i beseech you of our finances by those of other ruined potentates of europe though we have been engaged in war for three years we proceed in our buildings 
and everything else goes on as in a time of profound peace. It is two years since any new impost was levied. The war at present has its fixed establishment. That once regulated, it never disturbs the course of other affairs. If we capture another Kisa or two, the war is paid for. I shall be satisfied with myself whenever I meet with your approbation, monsieur. I likewise, a few weeks ago, read over again my instructions for the code, because I then thought peace to be nearer at hand than it is, and I found that I was right in composing them. I confess that this code will give me a considerable deal of trouble before it is brought to that degree of perfection at which I wish to see it, but no matter, it must be completed. Perhaps in a little time the Khan of the Crimea will be brought to me in person. I learn this moment that he did not cross the sea with the Turks, that he remained in the mountains with a small number of followers, nearly as was the case with the pretender in Scotland after the defeat at Culloden. If he comes to me, we will try to polish him this winter, and to take my revenge of him, I will make him dance, and he shall go to the French comedy. Just as I was about to fold up this letter, I received yours of the 10th of July, in which you inform me of the adventure that happened to my instruction in France. I knew that anecdote, and even the appendix to it, in consequence of the order of the Duke of Choiselle. I own that I laughed on reading it in the newspapers, and I found that I was amply revenged. End of chapter 25 Recording by Kevin Davidson www.blogordie.com